I'm Brooks Brunson. And I'm Emery Parker. And we're back again to discuss the forces shaping the Palmetto State's news. This is Understand South Carolina. So today we've got uh, two guests with us, and both of them have been on the show before. Tony Bartlemy, he's our uh, senior projects reporter. Hello, Tony. And nice to be here. And we've got Chloe Johnson, who's our coastal and environmental reporter and has been on the show twice before. Hello, hey, guys. Good to, good to be back. Friend of the pod. Yeah. Friend of the pod. <laughs> Basically another host. <laughs> and they're both here to talk about flooding. Tony has done um, several projects kind of outlining what's going on with sea level rise and um, some pretty wacky stuff that's happening in Charleston specifically. Uh, Chloe, I mean, flooding is kind of just a part of her beat. I think I feel like you write about flooding at least once a week in some capacity. So they're both kind of experts um, in different ways around the topic. So we're really excited to have them. So by the time this episode airs, it will have been about a week and a half since we had a tweet go straight up viral. I've been calling it the tweet. The tweet. Yeah. Chloe and Tony, do you all know about the tweet? I am very familiar with the tweet. It is <laughs> the darkest tweet, I think, that we've tweeted thus far. <laughs> Brooks, why don't you go, go ahead and, and read it? So, so yeah. um, this tweet was a link to a story about Bubba Gump shrimp closing, and this was from the Post and Courier brand account. And it reads, here in Charleston, it really doesn't matter when restaurants open or close because one day the entire city will be underwater. Nothing will exist. And all our pain and suffering will disappear. Eat Bubba Gump shrimp or don't because it's gone. <laughs> yeah. Our engagement editor, um, Matt Clow, wrote that at the end of the day last Friday and kind of just did it. And I was like, oh, this is happening. But yeah, that tweet was our most popular tweet of all time. It got 15,800 likes and another 4,500 retweets. Um, Mashable even called the Post and Courier to interview Matt about the story and he um the reporter mashable published a story with the headline newspapers tweet about climate change and bubba gump is too relatable um point being people are thinking about flooding and sea level rise right now so my first question for you guys is okay so the, <laughs> the tweet says that one day the entire city will be underwater is that true you know i i would say probably not in the near future, but I would also say that flooding and sea rises is the most, the biggest threat to the city's viability since perhaps the Civil War, the siege of the Civil War, maybe maybe even more dire. Yeah, I mean, I think um, if you want to think in geologic time, you know, our coastline used to be next to where Columbia is now, right? So um, over our millions of years, <laughs> water is moving back and forth, but the rate at which it's rising right now is the problem, right? It's not the normal rate. It's much faster than what we would expect. And I, yeah, I don't know if we can say that the city's going to be entirely underwater <laughs> anytime soon, but it's a problem and it's, it's disrupting the way we live our lives already. I also think, you know, the lesson of New Orleans is, is, is good for us because they're already kind of underwater. They're below sea level in lots of places, but they're still... They're just a little ahead of us, I guess, in, in some ways. And they also have that same nihilistic attitude about their future, which kind of makes it a big party town. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to be underwater, so let's just drink. Yep. So Emery and I had a, a, you know, as we've referenced on the show before, uh, Emery fell and was injured a few weeks ago and busted <laughs> we're, we're gonna, his We're going to tell, tell the world my story yes, and my pain. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually happened to be with Emery at the time. 
And we, it was part of the reason he fell too, is because he was, we were walking to my car and it was pouring down rain and we were running and it was pretty flooded. And I kind of had a moment where I was like, maybe we shouldn't be running in like this crazy thunderstorm and, and flood water. And then um, I saw Emery fly and fall on his head. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then we had to rush to the hospital and because he was bleeding out his head. And we physically could not get to the MUSC emergency right. room because of the flood. Right. Well, and, it, and it, you know, it wasn't even like a super unusual storm. You know, we, we were just out at Revelry. That's a kind of brew pub downtown. Um, just a random Thursday night. And, you know, the, it's a typical summer downpour that comes along every now and then and just happens to be one of those ones that kind of sits atop downtown and, and dumps a little bit more water than normal. And, you know, all the typical places flood. And it's I think we can talk about the fact that we even talk about typical places flooding in, in a minute. But but yeah, it um it was it was really, really wild and chaotic because one of those typical places that does flood is the entrance to the MUSC emergency department. And it, it was really wild because in that moment, you know, we're kind of panicking and, and don't really know what to do. Like we're already and, upset because he's <laughs> bleeding out of his head. You know, it's just really surprising though that for something that is so predictable, at least in in the sense that like if it floods, it's going to flood there. It was surprising to me to to see that actually there didn't really seem to be a lot of preparation for that kind of situation. There wasn't really a clear way that. We could get to the emergency room. Brooks ended up just like banging down the door at the the child's entrance, and they actually seemed really which, surprised, which was that, closed. And right. I saw and like a nurse was like, "What?" And I'm like, "He's bleeding out. We can't get in." You know, and that was like wondering, like, we can't be the first people that haven't been able to get to the emergency room. Yeah, there's also another issue too. You were bleeding. You had an open wound, and we've actually tested the floodwaters right by the hospital. Right. You know, the, during a bad thunderstorm where the water was hip deep in some places. In fact, the water was so deep while we were reporting and taking measurements, a car got stuck. And the, this old woman was driving, didn't know where to go. And we actually started pushing her out and the car started to float and <laughs> pushed. Holy crap. Yeah, and the crap is a good word because we measured it and the car and the floodwaters are full of this bacteria that would. would Poop bacteria. Boom. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, that that was the time. Yeah, I found that story while researching for this. Um, and I was like, oh, I remember that day. I got to put poop in a headline mm -hmm. and to poop in a push notification. Sorry. Yeah. The, um, the hospital district is like a lot of other areas of the peninsula, um, meaning it's been artificially filled. It's not traditionally been solid ground there. Um, and Charleston did this in the 1800s and, and further on in time too, but a bunch of other East coast cities did too. And these are exactly the areas when you have a cloudburst like that, that will flood. Um, it's, it's kind of a chronic <laughs> problem in older United States cities. What do you mean artificially filled? Right. So the land was probably originally a type of marsh, right? Oh, and wow. so it would have been very soft and unstable and already kind of prone to, you know, cord grasses and water coming in and out with the tides and, you know, not an area where you would typically build. And so it was filled in so it could be built there. And then we built a hospital on top of it. And then we built a hospital. We built several hospitals yeah, on top two, of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's um, Roper, MUSC and um, the Veterans Affairs has a has a facility there. And so what's happening kind of in the immediate term 
And um, MK Wildeman on our business desk has done a really good job reporting on this. But all these facilities are starting to have like ranch campuses. Um, MUSC is working on a big one in West Ashley across a river and a facility in North Charleston to sterilize, you know, it's medical equipment and um, all this kind of stuff. So they're starting to diversify where they're actually putting their facilities because they know that area is such a problem. Um, And I was actually at a meeting in the spring where this sort of liaison who's been talking to the hospitals about flooding issues um, was telling the public what their concerns are. And they're thinking about things like building elevated walkways between their buildings so that they can actually, you know, it's not just people getting into the emergency room. It's like they need to move in between buildings on that campus and they can't do it if it's flooded. So they're starting to think of shorter term fixes like that. In the longer term, the city is um, supposed to build a really big tunnel and pump system um, that would go under the hospital district, also partially College of Charleston. Um, it's called Calhoun West is the area that would is be that covered Is that separate by from the Crosstown? It is. Okay. So it's the same type. So right now they're finishing a tunnel and pump system under the Crosstown, which is a really important thoroughfare through the city. That's how I get to the city every single day from West Ashley. Um, and they're finishing it. The next one is going to be Calhoun West, the hospital district one. Um, but some hospital administrators have already tried to ask the state for like $10 million so that they can run a pipe from their area to the crosstown drainage because it's going to get done first. Um, I mean, the the city has, has tried to embark on a lot of these really big projects, right? Like, I was actually inside the tunnel under the Crosstown um, a few months ago, and it's massive and it's really impressive, but these things take forever. They're super expensive. The Crosstown project is like $43 million over budget right now, um, and it's not going to get done until like four years later than everybody thought. And Tony, I found a story, now this is from 2017, where you wrote a good bit about this. I think the headline was something like, in order for Charleston to fix its flooding problem, it's going to be billions of dollars in a generation, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about some of that? Yeah, I think, you know, we, for, for many years, the, the city really had its head in the sand. And we, in 2015, we wrote a, a pretty aggressive article calling the city out, basically saying that they had done little to address one of the most important issues facing the city. And then we had storm after storm, uh, year after year, these, these massive dumps of rain and water that helped kind of punctuate what we were talking about. And then in, in 2017, I think it was right after Irma yep. came through, and it was a huge, huge storm surge that turned the city into a lake. And again, you know, where was the city? What, you know, it's, it's 2017 at that point, and we're way behind the curve. And it's like now we're just playing catch up, right? I mean, as you just described, Chloe, it's it's not cheap just to fix this. It's yeah, it's really expensive. It's interesting you brought up New Orleans before, Tony, because the thing about some of these bigger engineered fixes, too, is that they don't always work. Um, So in New Orleans, the Army Corps very recently finished a whole new set of levees around the city, right? It is under sea level. um, So you need actual walls to keep the water out pretty much all the time. And this was a $14 billion project, and it was in the spring when basically the Army Corps found out that um, the levees were sinking. So in like four years, they're not going to be fully effective. (laughs) 
So they spend $14 billion on a project that's only going to work as designed for four years. Yeah, the city's had a uh, kind of a history of of pursuing these big ticket items, but perhaps one of the most successful projects the city has done was a small ticket effort to put these things called check valves in the city's storm drain. So the you know the Low Country is well named, and the uh, you know a lot of the city actually floods at high tide, and the tide comes up through the storm drains and floods the streets even during sunny days. But lo and behold, there's this simple technology, basically a valve that stops the water from coming in up the storm sewers. And then it opens when the tide goes out. And the city's been installing these these check valves, as they're called, throughout the peninsula. And they've done a wonderful job of controlling this sunny day flooding. Really? What are some, do y'all know some of the places that they've been installed? I'm just trying to think if I've like noticed yet. Yeah, so, so there was a great... Problem area uh, right across from Cannon Park, which is this old site of the old Charleston Museum. And he has five columns just standing out. There's a beautiful park. But on a sunny day, any tide over seven feet, the street would be covered with water. And you couldn't get through. And that's right by the hospital. Yeah, It's not too far from the hospital. So that's a main route. So they put one there. And they put one kind of toward the Sergeant Jasper area, one near South Battery. And, and they're installing them uh, in other places around the city. They've been very successful. They're probably going to do some on the east side. Hmm, I don't even know about that. Great it, to hear that there's yeah. something that's already been in place. Sure. They, I mean, they, you know, they're working on a lot of things. It's just such a big problem. And I think there were many years in which um, this stuff was not getting implemented. That's kind of, it's a, it's a problem of catch up. They've also built a small berm along Morrison Drive, in the Upper Peninsula, kind of where it connects to the Ravenel Bridge, which is a very chronically flooded area in high tides and it's helped a little bit, you know, it has its limits. If the tide reaches like eight feet, that berm might get overtopped. So the smaller stuff helps for this small sunny day flooding, right? Tidal flooding that we see fairly frequently. We get like 40 days of that a year right now. So yeah, that's kind of, I wanted to talk a little bit about like how is it getting worse over time and what are the, got tidal flooding and obviously rainfall, like what are like some of the things that contribute to flooding? Yeah, it, it can come from multiple directions. So we can have a particularly high tide and that might be driven by the phase of the moon and also wind can just literally push water um, higher along the coastline if it's aimed in the right direction at the same time. You know, we could have a hurricane for example, that that incorporates both storm surge, so the water getting higher in the harbor and rivers and rain, right? Or we can just have these cloud bursts. Tony, I think you call them rain bombs usually. And those are something that's being exacerbated by climate change because when the atmosphere is warmer, it can hold a lot more water and it can drop a lot more water. Which is kind of what I felt like might have happened the night that Emory got injured. Yeah, it, was, I mean, it was like out of nowhere, like right. boom. Rainfall. Right. And it, it also, though, it, like, it, it also just depends, too, sometimes what the pattern of the of the storm is. Like, every now and then, you know, you just get a storm that kind of just lines up and just dumps a lot of rain in one particular area, which I think that was another part of what was going on Thursday night. Like, it, you know, sometimes these storms move through really quickly. You know, they might dump a lot of water, but they do it quickly enough that it's not a problem. Or, you know, you can get one that just kind of the way that it develops and, and moves over time results in a couple of inches of rain. And that is, we just, we can't handle it when it happens. So yeah, how is climate change and sea level rise contributing 
specifically to making these problems worse? I mean, I know you touched. I mean, I know you touched on well, with the rainfall. But. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe though. I, one question I had before we get into into that, um, you mentioned Chloe that like, so we we have these particular areas that flood. They are either areas I think that are just low lying to begin with, but a lot of them are these areas that like were filled in. So. I guess I'm wondering, do we know, like, did we do a bad job of filling them in? Is, <laughs> is Like, was this a problem back in the 1800s? And we knew, well, like, or is it yeah, getting worse yeah, or yeah. what? Or, you Whose know, idea we, was that? Right. <laughs> Whose idea was that? Everyone's idea on the East right, Coast. Right. Like, um, when, they, when they built a hospital there, did they know it was going to flood? Sure. I mean, I don't know a lot about the specific history of the MSC right. facility. But, um, you know, like I said, the, the time period in which a lot of this filling happened um, a lot of cities were doing it. Charleston's had drainage issues for hundreds of years. That's not necessarily new, but some some newer building and development has made it even worse. So in the outer suburbs, there's an area called the Church Creek Basin. There's one creek that drains a huge area of thousands of acres into the Ashley River. And as that was sort of developed down in the 80s and 90s and even up to today, there's still houses being built there. Developers had to raise their lots, right? They had to raise their houses up off the ground because it was too low. And they did that with um, compacted dirt, with fill dirt. So it was it was solid ground. It wasn't like a marsh necessarily, but they had to make it higher. And so then if you've ever sort of like played with, you know, how water moves in a creek or something, if you kind of create like a hill or something like that, it'll push the water somewhere else. And just what's happening is construction there really was the driver um, that has has made drainage problems a lot worse in Church Creek and flooded people's homes um, and made these storms even more of a problem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it started with artificial fill on the on the peninsula in the 1800s, but it has continued up into, you know, almost today um, of people just looking for places to build. Well, yeah, I mean, like there's. There's a really great example uh, happening right now, uh, pretty much next door to the medical district, which is like the West Edge project. That part of town is is like right now where the baseball stadium is. And there have been there are like a couple of municipal buildings over there. Mostly it is like a gigantic parking lot for MUSC. Yeah. Um, but right now it is being like massively developed with a bunch of like mid-rise developments as there's a brand new Publix that just opened over there. It's going to be a lot of offices. That is one of those areas that just floods. It's an uh, incredibly yeah. vulnerable section of yeah, the so peninsula. Like, yeah. Is is this is this stupid? Like <laughs> well, what they're doing is they're, they're, I guess. they're bringing in a tremendous amount of dirt and, yeah. and building up, building up. And that where's that water going to go? It's going to go into that big tunnel system okay. that they're building. So, yeah, so, so hopefully it's not stupid, I guess. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm very intimate. I have a very intimate relationship with the city's bad history of filling dirt. I, I live in an area near MUSC that once was a, a lake yeah. or a pond. And it was next to a, an old lumber mill. And they would bring in the logs and they would chop them up and they would put the sawdust in the marsh. So if you dig down below my house about six feet, you will hit a layer of sawdust. So all of our houses are built on this marsh fill, this sawdust. Huh. And that's why the, the street's kind of crumbling and everything's sort of sinking. My neighbor's chimney started sinking suddenly and was take, actually taking the house down. 
you could slowly. So they were able to get the chimney out. But as soon as they took the chimney out, boom, the house pack popped back up. So we're all floating on this mush. Yeah, flo- floating's a really, a really good way to. I've actually, I, you know, the floods and a bad storm. It floods up to uh, one time. It floods up to the top of my stick shift. Wow! I forgot to move my car. I um, I've kayaked around the block with my son uh, without touching bottom. Wow! I, I brought in my my hip waders. I use them all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean yeah, that's 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 something you got to have if you're like living or working downtown. Not yeah. necessarily waders, but you got to at least have some some decent rain boots. Yeah. Um, but just to get back to the example of West edge, which is this huge complex of offices and shops that are being built on the West side of the city, that's all being built on a former trash dump, Mm -hmm. um, which was marsh. Um, I actually have pictures of the marsh being filled in, in like the forties and fifties in that area. And yeah, it's, it's become an interesting case because there is a tiny little Creek that flows through there called Gadsden Creek. Yeah. Um, and it's right next to a public housing development that has had horrific flooding problems for decades, for many decades. And so, you know, suddenly, uh, I think partly through awareness raised by the paper and are just like hammering away at this flooding issue, you know, since 2015 and even before. And the storms that we've had, you know, they're trying to build out the next phase of that development, right? They've done part of it. They're, the long-term plan was always to build more. And it involves filling in that little creek and pumping the water in a different direction. And everyone is, um, a lot of people who live around there and a lot of people who pay attention to flooding are showing up at public meetings. And they're like, we cannot, we cannot do this anymore. The developer would tell you, well, that water is contaminated anyway because it's a former trash dump, right? Um, so do we really want dirty water flowing into the river? Maybe not. Uh, which is an understandable, you know, impulse. Um, but I think we're just reaching this point where people actually are getting really, really skeptical of the development around them and looking at it and saying, wait, this is not, you know, this is this is not the way you deal with water necessarily. I mean, it's like Charleston's growing and, you know, it's it's a destination city, right? And so, you know, it's not like you can't say let's just stop development on these areas. But at the same time, like it just seems really stupid. Is that okay for me to say? I don't know. Well, I I mean, I think, I think, (laughs) I mean, the Dutch would say it's waters. You live with it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think part of the issue is that the way people built for a long time and you know, you're right. People want to live here. People want to visit here. Um, We have an affordable housing crisis at the same time. We have this problem with homes being flooded um, in storms, but the way people were building houses for a long time was cheap, right? Trucking and dirt and plopping a house on top of it is cheap. You can do different things. You know, you could build a house higher on stilts, you know, with kind of a wall on the ground that would let water through. There's different ways to develop. You could build more densely, right? Um, where people are living in an apartment building and the footprint is smaller, but a lot of people are living there. Um, but that's just not, you know, partially because of cost and partially because of the kinds of homes that people want. That's just not what has happened in the past necessarily. In the past, you know, this is the low country, right? And so people built on the highest places of the low country. Those places are full now. And so you're left building in these lower, even lower places. Like there's a development that was planned on John's Island that was again in a, in a very low place. And 
for the first time, people really started talking about how developing there would affect flooding elsewhere on John's Island. And that, that area, again, was in this sort of dip. There's a, there's a particular concern about that area. And not all of it is in the city of Charleston either. So that makes it even more complicated. It's not just one city government that gets a say um, in what's going to happen out on John's Island. Right. That, and that probably is worth um, just mentioning the fact that, well, obviously, we've talked a lot about the peninsula and the flooding challenges here, but really it is a region-wide issue. Um, Absolutely. There, there are pretty much parts of the, like, every part of this metro has at least, like, some area that is problematic when it comes to water. And I, and I would assume, too, that probably extends along most of the coast, right? I mean— yeah, you would. You would. You know, with all these sort of rain bombs hitting too, you're you're hit, you're getting these massive slugs of water that are affecting everybody across the state. Yeah, I mean, and you know, it it's going up the coast too. I mean, I I lived in Norfolk, Virginia, and right when I got there, people kept being like, "Oh, just get ready. You're not going to be prepared for the flooding that we get here." And I'm like, "Oh well, <laughs> I might know a thing or two about that." Um, but you know, and that's. 500 miles from here. But one thing, you know, so we've talked a lot about development and how that's made the problem worse, and, you yeah. know, about these uh, like rain bombs. But I do want, um, and this is something that I know Tony has written a lot about to talk about like sea level rise specifically and how like, you know, what are the other factors besides right. development that are contributing? The sea has risen a foot since the late 1800s. And that's due in part to a warming climate, a rapidly warming climate, and also a little... Uh, related to the land sinking a little bit, subsiding. And there are various estimates that uh, range from three to three feet and up, really, for sea levels to rise in the next. Again, it's it's kind of a moving target. But significantly, enough to cover a significant part of the low country within a generation or two. So you're seeing multiple factors to it. You're seeing you know, even things like the Gulf Stream, for instance. The, the Gulf Stream flows by our coast with such momentum that it actually draws water away from the coast and lowers our sea level. But if it slows down, as a lot of scientists believe is happening because of a rapidly warming climate, the seas will rise more quickly because of that. And also you have this massive, massive melt of glaciers and ice at the poles. All these things combined are, are creating a situation that's pretty... Mm-hmm. That's part of why it's also hard to say for sure exactly how high the water's going to get. Because there's a lot of interlocking sort of global patterns going on. So, for example, the Greenland ice sheet, which has melted quite a lot this summer, much more than scientists were necessarily expecting, is so big that it has its own gravity. So it literally <laughs> pulls liquid water what? towards it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a crazy fact. It pulls liquid water towards it, um, which sort of keeps water levels depressed a lot of other places on the globe. And just all these different factors are really complicated and they interact with each other. And so that's, you know, if you see a bunch of different estimates for how high the water is going to get, you know, that's why we know it's rising, <laughs> but it's, it's hard to say exactly how much. If we even look at just, well, let's say that climate change isn't a factor. We've lost a, a foot already. Just one more foot in the next in the next 50 or 60 years would make a significant difference. Yeah. I mean, that that's the point at which it could, you know, roads could get overtopped regularly. There's an exit off the Ashley River Bridge that goes to Ashley River Road that is insanely low. I don't understand why it was built that low and it's already getting covered, you know, a couple times a year. So are we going to have major arteries get cut off? That's the kind of thing that could happen even with as little as a foot 
uh, fairly frequently. I don't know about you. I, I, you know, I have trouble thinking about the future, you know, and I think I'll, where's the sense of urgency? I sometimes wonder, but also, you know, uh, it's a, it'll happen down the road. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think my personal theory is that the real timeline people care about is about 30 years because that's how long a mortgage is, right? Yeah. So if you, <laughs> that's the point at which people start not buying homes or moving away or really trying to sell. I that's kind of what I wonder. And I, are we are we in a really extreme situation in thirty years? I don't know that we are. I think there's evidence to show that it, we could be it, yeah, that you've written and you know, you've uh, touched on this that, that we're out we're at a close to a tipping point on on the peninsula when it comes to real estate where people are taking into account their flood vulnerability and that's that's affecting home prices. Yeah, that was kind of something I was I was just about to ask. Like housing prices are going up. Yeah, are they going to start going down? Yeah, I I don't think generally the market's quite as robust as it was even a year ago. I don't think we're in like this breakneck sprint that we had been in in home prices for the past couple of years, although they're going up. You know, I I've had people tell me that they think their streets are in trouble and their neighbors can't sell their houses or can't get the value they expected to get. So, you know, we're not in a situation where whole streets are being abandoned or anything like that. Um, but people are starting to see in a few areas impacts on their home price. It's a sticky situation because if you're not in a neighborhood that is absolutely notorious for flooding and everybody knows it, if you're not from here, you know, the seller doesn't necessarily have to tell you the full flood history. Um, hmm. I've looked at the real estate disclosure forms and they're wildly vague. <laughs> they, you know, there's it's it's very unclear. And that's a that's a big problem for home buyers, especially if they're not familiar with the area. They may not know how vulnerable a house is. Yeah, some of these areas look like they should be on CNN after a thunderstorm. And the water comes and it goes, but it's easy to if you're selling your house not to talk about. That. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend that bought a house like a year ago or so, and she lost her car from it being parked on the street, and it was you know it's kind of in that area close-ish to West Edge, I guess the neighborhood's called. West side was it called. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, and it's like, she told me that and I was like, whoa, like, you know, your car went completely, it was just parked on the street and went completely underwater. And like, you know, she's lived here a long time, but it happened during a thunderstorm. It wasn't, you know, during one of these hurricane events, it was, you know, a June thunderstorm kind of didn't, kind of didn't anticipate there would be that much flooding that day. And, you know, the situation that Emery and I trying to get to the hospital, I mean, that's that's what's kind of odd to me is you're seeing so much of this, like, pop-up thunderstorms where there's flooding and roads close out of nowhere, and it's not necessarily isolated to, like, a hurricane or something that we could predict. After every frog drowner, rain bomb, you know, you'll, you'll see dozen, more than a dozen cars in, around MUSC towed because they're, they're often you know, people who are either patients or hospital workers who left their cars parked in the neighborhood, and they couldn't get out in time. There's so many different possible negative outcomes that can come with flooding, right? Like, Yeah, it's unpredictable, and that makes it even more stressful, right, if you don't have a – if you don't think you know when it might happen. And then there's also – we Tony touched on this earlier, but Tony and Glenn Smith did a project like a year ago about exposing that there's poop bacteria in the – and the floodwaters here, like what? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, we all, we always wondered what was in the water, you know, that we're walking through. Because after every storm, you see people walking through them in their bare feet and walk, you know, around the College of Charleston, people see, you know, walking to classes. And 
we wondered, you know, what's, you know, what's in there? And we'd found that the city had never tested the water. DHEC had never tested the water. They just said, don't walk in it because it's full of poop. So we waited for a thunderstorm and we, one lunch, one day at lunch, you know, the clouds opened up and it was a really bad storm. And then we decided, okay, let's deploy. And we sent a, a couple of us went out, Glenn Smith and I went out and started taking samples. And then we watched people walk through it. And then we got the results back uh, a couple of days later. And they were thousands of times higher than what would be considered safe. How does the poop bacteria get, get in there? So it comes from a s- multiple sources. Most of it comes from probably animals. Oh, yeah, it makes and, sense. And, but so also, your dog in your yard. Right. Your dog in your mm-hmm. yard. And then, you know, you, you look around during a storm, you know, they're Porta potties get flooded, and they're mm. and they're bad bad sewers. There's a lot of old pipes around town, so they just leak sewage. But it's you know it's just wild to me that yeah, there's all of these other like you know there's the kind of obvious consequences to flooding, but then you don't think about the fact that you might not be able to get to the hospital if there's an emergency. You might you know get sick from consuming poop water. You know, like I, it's wild. During Hurricane Matthew, the sto- the surge. The, the storm surge was so high around Roper and MUSC that the National Guard was called in to ferry employees to the hospital. That would have been Hurricane Irma, which broke some tide records, that was, which was a tropical storm when it actually passed by. It put three to four feet around the hospital and turned, yeah. turned the hospital into. You know, I remember Matthew. It was pretty bad, too. <laughs> I think it was Matthew. And then and then they had better plans for Irma. But yeah, it just showed the, the, this major meta, major statewide regional medical center is sitting, you know, in a place that quickly fills up with water. Tony, I'm, I'm a minute ago you you brought up the Dutch, and I think the the Dutch story is actually really really interesting and it might be worth talking a little bit about. Uh, the last time I was I was there, I actually went on like kind of a tour of their Delta Works project. And I'll explain what the Delta Works is in, in a second. But in the process, learned a lot about the Dutch and their history with with dealing with water. Uh, the, the Netherlands actually it means like the name of their country means the Low Country. Uh, like it, other countries call them the Low Country. They are the Low Country of Europe, right? Um, so yeah, they have this long, long, long history of of dealing with water and dealing with floods. But their History really comes to a point in 1953 when something that they call like the water snood, that the water disaster happens. And you know something is bad when it's just called the disaster, right? Like uh, the tweet. The Sorry. tweet, exactly. <laughs> and they called it the water snood? The water snood. Oh, that, yeah. Such a great word. Yeah. Uh, what it was is basically like the remnants of a hurricane, but it was unusually strong and it hit the entire North Sea area. So it didn't just hit the Netherlands, it hit England and, and parts of France as well. But over the years, like over centuries, the Dutch had built up this like incredibly complicated system of dikes and levees and, you know, had some success with it. And then this one storm comes and breaks a bunch of uh, dams in the southern part of the country around like the city of Rotterdam, where there's a bunch of islands. It was an unmitigated disaster. Over 2,000 people died. Um, it was one of the like worst disasters in that country's history. And it's a small country too. So you can imagine, you know, if, if like if 2000 people died in South Carolina, that's just, that's a huge, huge loss. Thousands of like acres were, were flooded and, and had to be drained. So the government there came up with this, this plan. And one of the things they wanted to determine was like, 
it sounds morbid, but they were like, how much is the life of like one of our citizens worth? Because we we know that to like fix this once and for all is going to cost a lot of money. Uh, they ended up coming up with this number of like 2.2 million euro per person. That's what they figured like a life is worth. And then they set about building the Delta Works, which is this system of just massive, massive seawalls that basically seal off the inner ocean from the North Sea. So they, they can actually effectively control the tides. And they've never had a, ma- a massive disaster since then. And, and what basically what they figured is that, you know, it was, it was worth spending the money because they figure, you know, if, if the people, if, if a person's life is worth like 2.2 million euro, then it's worth spending billions of dollars on this thing. But it really took that disaster, though, to come up with a, a comprehensive solution for them. We, we probably had that water snood moment. Right. But it's multiple moments, Matthew, Irma, right. Florence. What that reminds me of, though, is, is what we started, started off talking about, like this uh, study that says, you know, it's, it's going to cost billions of dollars to build seawalls, uh, you know, and protect Charleston. And, you know, again, like, is, it, is that something that we're going to, you know, I don't know, I guess I'm just kind of getting into speculation here. You, you know, people are going to look at that and, and see that's a, a terrible, like, price tag but yeah i have a bone to pick with the seawall study okay um just because it's like completely unrealistic right um you know the the thing is that seawalls have effects on the natural environment around them right so if you put a seawall on a sandy beach the beach is going to disappear because the wave action will smack into the seawall grab the sand and pull it out to sea So, you know, we have a very interesting and delicate ecosystem here, and it's something that the people who live here care a lot about. So would we even build all the seawalls that that study suggested? Oh, yeah. And that's 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 I think that's a big question. And actually, that that ended up being an issue in in the Netherlands, too. The 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 the, um, sea that they sealed off is is like the Ostershell, the um, Western Sea. It um, went from being salt water to being brackish, and that created like a huge. That's a series. big. That's a really big difference. Seri- um, yeah. And you know, speaking again of the Dutch, the city of Charleston right now is undergoing this massive study. It's called the Dutch Dialogues. There's a bunch of Dutch engineers, and they've been in and out of town, talking to people about where it floods. You know what the landscape is like. Um, and they very recently gave kind of a preliminary overview of what they'd found so far and what they might suggest we do. And the very first option they brought up was, well, you know, would we build basically huge tidal gates, mm-hmm. kind of what you're describing, to close off the various mouths of water along the coast? Um, and the engineer who floated this idea immediately was like, this is not realistic for you guys. And that's for lots of reasons, right? We have lots of barrier islands around this region, so it would just be miles and miles of wall. We have, you know, a major port here and a shipping path. Um, and there are ecological effects like turning water brackish. So, yeah, a lot, you know, again, you can probably tell I am innately skeptical of these very big mm-hmm. built well, you know, and two, the one one thing that one thought that I've not been able to shake thinking about like massive engineering projects like this is okay. So, so the project that I just described in the Netherlands, they you know did all the math and, and figured out and spent you know all of the, all of this money, 
but that was a one-off disaster. And really what we're talking about now is, is something like climate change, where it's not just a disaster in Charleston. We're not just talking about needing to build something or, or mitigate disasters in one city. We're talking about the entire East Coast, yeah, the, the New- entire West Coast. Yeah, the New know? York Times just had a really dark story that's like, what cities should we save? Exactly. Basically. So, <laughs> so like, it's as morbid as it sounds to consider a government trying to decide how much a, a, the life of a citizen is worth. I think that's the thought that I can't shake is, is there going to be a point where we're doing the same thing, but it's like whole cities? It's. I mean, it's just, it's already so hard to find money, you know, for this drainage project under the crosstown, the city happened to have this pot of money from a tax district they made decades ago. Um, If they didn't have that, how would they cover $43 million? That's a big question. And the hospitals, you know, they're asking the state to give them this federal grant money to connect into that drainage project. And it is not clear if they're going to get it or not. You know, we're not the only place in South Carolina that's asking for money. We're not the only state along the coast that really needs money to fix some of this stuff. So it's going to be a mad scramble, frankly. The good news is that I think the city finally has come to grips with the seriousness of the situation. You can't solve a problem unless you know it's a problem. And, and they've begun to show that they're taking it seriously. But it's, yeah, it's like you said earlier, it's kind of only been within the last five or six years. Or even less, really. It, they have really only gotten serious in the last two years. It's been a really bumpy road. And, um, I and my colleague Stephen Hobbs are working on a series of stories about flooding and specifically how it affects homes. And um, our first piece was about how after a major flood, a city is supposed to go up and essentially count the damage to the best of their ability. And you do this um, if you're involved in the flood insurance program, which we are here in Charleston. Anyone can buy flood insurance. You don't have to be in a flood zone. And you're supposed to count up all that damage. And if a house gets damaged enough, you need to either raise it to the height it's supposed to be. Most of our houses here were built before height standards, so they'd have to go up higher. That's R-A-I-S-E, not R-A-Z-E. Yes, lift it, lift (laughs) it. it. This this was a big problem when we were writing the story, too. Lift the house or you demolish the house, right? So either way, you're removing it from the floodplain, from the area where we might expect water to reach. So what what I and Stephen Hobbs found is that Charleston just did an abysmal job of counting up this damage in 2015, um, 2016, and you know probably also missed, I actually I know for a fact, missed damage in 2017 as well, right? That was just two years ago. Um, and that has a permanent effect because houses that might have been elevated or removed are still there. And people can still buy them and still sink money into them and still try and fix them. So, yeah, it's it's even as the city has gotten serious about what a problem there is here, you know, it's bumpy and it's a learning curve. And, you know, they're they're humans and and making mistakes along the way. To kind of get back to where we started the episode talking about this nihilistic, dark and doomy tweet. I mean... Are we doomed? I mean, it kind of sounds like it because it's like there might be solutions, but they're expensive and they're going to take a long time and none of them are really great solutions. Yeah. I mean, in the short term, no, we're fine in the short term. But that doesn't mean there's that we should not talk about this. And I'll I'll just say this on a lighter note. I kind of like the flooding. (laughs) You know, (laughs) 
Because uh, you like the kayaking? Is that like, why? I, I, we're we're going to get some feedback on that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of like, I kind of hate it, but I, I kind of like the, to see the water come in and turn my neighborhood into something that looks like Venice for, for, for a couple of days. <laughs> I, I like the, you know, that connection between the tides and nature. Yeah. Maybe so, we'll just be like, I'm like Venice. So it's, it's living with the water. I think the trick I think is to make it so it's not so completely irritating or dangerous. In the case of Emery's open headwood in the <laughs> middle of a frog drowner. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap the episode up. Brooks. Yes. Do you understand South Carolina better? Absolutely. Uh, getting some of that history about like, I didn't even realize that, you know, MUSC was built on what used to be marsh, essentially. I had no idea about that context. Um, nor did I realize just how screwed we are, maybe. maybe. Even though Tony doesn't think so, but or he does, but, you know, he likes it. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of depressed, honestly. I, peop, I just want to <laughs> say, people are very adaptable, right? Like, we, everyone in this room knows where it floods when it rains. Yeah. Um, which is weird to even have to know that, but yeah, people know. find a way to work around things. I mean, that's... That's, That's how it goes. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, fools build on shifting sands, right? But then again, who who doesn't love the beach? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh Emery, do you understand South Carolina better? Yeah, I do. I like I said though, I, I just I can't shake the feeling that we're gonna be in for some difficult choices. Maybe not in the immediate future, but in in my lifetime, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not looking forward to that, but We'll see. Get some waiters. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening today. If you are interested in this topic, uh, we had uh, Chloe on for an episode uh, like five or six weeks ago uh, about hurricanes and forecasting. We touch a little bit more on some of this climate change stuff. And yeah. if you want to hear me and Chloe just like absolutely nerding out about weather stuff, yeah, they yeah. tremendous. Tremendous episode. <laughs> yeah. And uh, me getting really worked up about Storm Team. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of take. Lots of takes on that one. It was a classic episode. Yeah. And uh, you can also get more, hear from more from Tony by listening to our first episode, which he talks about his project um, exposing how corrupt South Carolina sheriffs are. And that, Another tremendous episode. Yeah. I get really worked up about Golden Corral. And that's mm-hmm. all I'll say. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you, guys. Well... Talk to you next week. All right, and that's all. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier in Charleston. Our theme song is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music by searching for Billy, that's with an I-E, Fountain, on Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can get in touch with us by emailing understandsc at postandcourier.com, or, of course, you can tweet at us with any questions or comments. And if you're a fan of the show, please take a second to like us and leave a rating on the Apple Podcast Store. See y'all later.